Hi there. Thanks for joining tonight. It's great to see you. Um, I'm Josh. This is Dharma Punts, uh, New York. Just want to acknowledge that it's for me the uh, time of the year where my allergies completely kick in. So my voice is a little deeper. I'm prone to sneezing and coughing. In fact, I'm going to get some tissues. Thank you for being with us. And um, May 21st, we'll be doing another one of our gatherings at Center Yoga. And also soon in June, we'll be doing something down in Philadelphia. Looking forward to that. And uh, if you'd like to support my work as a Buddhist pastor, the Venmo is Dharma Punks NYC and the PayPal on uh, dharmapunksnyc.com website. And there's also the Patreon button. Thank you for your support. All of the counseling and teaching is done entirely by donation only. I'm going to give a talk tonight on various theories of addiction and also some insights into recovery, kind of an overview. It's going to be a lot to take in. Hopefully, you'll find at least a couple of insights worth entertaining. Dharma Punks itself started primarily as a recovery-focused Buddhist organization or movement. At the meetings, pretty much everyone was uh, in recovery. So, um, an overview of addiction and recovery. Well, active addiction is primarily a psychological disorder involving a whole bunch of complex interactions between brain circuits, genetics, and individuals' life experiences in one's environment. And it leads to a disorder that has clear characteristics intimate connections begin to dwindle. The individual becomes increasingly isolated and gravitates towards regulating emotions and alleviating pain through uh, substances or behaviors rather than connecting with others. Another characteristic of addiction is needing ever greater amounts to achieve the same relief that one got at the beginning from a far less amount, continuing to, to use despite negative consequences. People feel physically sick when they start to abstain from the substance. And so very often part of addiction is this feedback loop where people consume just to avoid the discomfort of being without a substance. What I'm next going to do is going to sort of describe various different theoretical models of what causes addiction. And I'm going to start first with Buddhist model of craving, because that's a model that has been around for 2,500 years, so it's the oldest. So uh, I believe it deserves to go first. Uh, in the Dharmic Insight, Life has inevitable painful experiences, pain, loss, separation, frustration, and we inevitably experience difficult feelings known as dukkha vedana. And when these difficult feelings arise in us, uh, it creates a compensatory response to seek short-term pleasures which the Buddha called craving or tanha, to numb the discomfort of the emotional pain of losing people, not getting what we want, getting older, uh, separation from people that we love, and so forth. So as we crave pleasures to numb the discomfort, uh, eventually, we find that the relief that these short-term pleasures, whether they're alcohol or shopping or food or um, work or uh, anything, video gaming, um, uh, the relief dissipates. The distress and disappointment uh, returns in the sense of being let down. And once again, we... Seek short-term pleasures, and it creates 
and a hedonic cycle, hedonic cycle of chasing short-term pleasures to avoid, to seek an inoculation from pain, the inevitable pain of, of being alive. Um, and there are some benefits to the Buddhist model of addiction. It certainly reduces the shame of addiction because from a Buddhist model, um, addiction is kind of universal. It's transpersonal. From a Buddhist perspective, any kind of craving that seeks to obliterate the inevitable pain in life rather than learning how to develop distress tolerance, that's about learning how to be with life on its terms, is a form of craving or a form of addiction. In the Dharma, craving is addressed by renouncing short-term pleasures that we've become dependent on and learning to observe and create a space for the negative feelings and emotional pain associated with life's disappointing events, rather than reacting and constantly feeling this impulse to seek a kind of fast, immediate pleasure to alleviate our discomfort. In the early teachings of the Buddha, he talked about the way to break the addictive chain was to learn how to observe feelings arising and passing without, without acting on them. So that's the core Buddhist approach, kind of distress tolerance, a kind of exposure therapy in the sense that we're just learning to observe that if we don't run from our pain, that at times oh, we begin to see that it becomes less and less unbearable. Of course, there's some deficits in the Buddhist model of addiction, which is one, uh, the insights are kind of, well, not kind of, they are entirely transpersonal and universal. There's nothing in the Dharma that explains why for instance, some people are more prone to addiction than others, why some people might wind up uh, having an extremely low bottom, wind up uh, living in an unhoused situation, addicted to substances that could kill them, while other people might at times binge a little on shopping. It doesn't really seem like that comparison is quite equal. And there's really very little insights as to the underlying psychology beyond it's, it's a response to emotional discomfort. So um, certainly millions of people have been helped by the Dharma in achieving recovery, and generally it's done in community, and generally it's... Um, it involves a kind of not only mutuality of support, but also abstaining is very much. Or if it's something we have to consume, like food, you can't just give up eating food if that's the root of our addiction is food or relationships with others. Then we have to learn how to follow what the Buddha called the moderates, which is the requisites, excuse me, what is just the right amount to consume versus what is too much. Okay, so that's a basic insight into the Buddhist view of recovery. Uh, I should also note that um, in many ways, some similarities with the view that late stage capitalism has created a perfect ecosystem for addiction to thrive. Um, in late stage capitalism, there's a constant en emphasis on self-sustaining individuals have all the burden of their health and well-being there's very little social safety nets and on top of that there's vast wealth inequality which exacerbates a sense of shame for those who are not exceptionally wealthy and exacerbates stress and on top of it certainly in american versions of capitalism there's a lack of affordable mental health which condemns countless people to seeking anxiety and pain relief from the commodities that capitalism happily supplies in overabundance, namely opiates, alcohol, and pharmaceuticals. So capitalism both separates us 
burdens us with stress and then offers these um, addictive stress relief substances. But just like the Buddhist model, it, this doesn't explain why some individuals are more prone to um, addiction than others, uh, why so many don't have substance dependency, and I should also add that for the time being, uh, quoting Mark Fisher, uh, capitalism does feel pretty much endemic. I'm not aware that anytime soon, sadly, late-stage capitalism is just going to fold up its tent and give up. So the idea that the way to address addiction is to solely find community outside of the capitalist um, uh, exchange system, the capitalist organization. Some people can do it, but for many, that is a unreasonable demand for recovery. Uh, certainly, though, there are pockets within capitalism where people can experience community and can find mutual support and those communities do ease recovery and allow individuals to have a greater chance of um, of addressing substance dependency. So now let's take a look at the Freudian model. Um, I'm a old lover of Freud as well as the Buddha. I grew up in a household where those those were the two. Um, principal uh, thinkers that my parents loved to read. So Freud has an interesting theory, which is that, of course, uh, we suppress the painful emotional memories of early life events, the times of neglect, loneliness, loss of attention, uh, all the interpersonal wounds. We have these memories that become at first suppressed, which means we compartmentalize them or shove them out of awareness, and then we keep them repressed, which means we develop defenses against remembering these painful memories of abandonment, neglect, shaming, judgment from others, and so forth. And unfortunately, in daily life, um, situations evoke these unconscious memories, and as they start to resurface, we experience what Freud called signal anxiety. Signal anxiety is the anticipation that danger is everywhere. And it initiates a compulsive uh, response to alleviate the anxiety. And that would be through very often. Uh, and Freud's work was primarily focused on sexual compulsions, but of course, alcohol, drugs, gambling, so on and so forth, were other ways that people would address signal anxiety. And once again, signal anxiety is caused by painful memories from childhood resurfacing due to being uh, activated in our daily life. Something in our adult life reminds us an interaction with a, uh, a, a relational partner might evoke a time from childhood where we felt abandoned by a father or mother, and that will start to initiate the return of these buried memories, and that resurfacing causes anxiety, and addiction is the attempt to alleviate that anxiety. Um, and so from a Freudian perspective, the only way to address um, compulsive behaviors is by the return of the repressed. In a therapeutic context, you talk about all the painful memories of the abandonments of childhood, and when all of these horrible, uh, very uh, distressing memories are brought back, and you can now integrate them into your life rather than running from them, uh, then addiction will be alleviated significantly. And sadly, while it's a wonderful theory, um, if you know anything about addiction, if you've worked with addicts and alcoholics, the first thing you'll know is that many have done a lot of therapy and have completely 
uh, are very fluent in all of the traumas of their childhood and still they drink and consume. So it does seem to be more than just bringing back to conscious awareness the traumas of traumatic memories of childhood. I'm not going to go too deeply into classical conditioning, which is, you know, the whole behaviorist Skinner uh, Pavlovian idea that uh, we can pretty much link uh, by association um, a behavior with a emotional state. Like, for example, of course, uh, if you ring a bell before you give food to a dog. Eventually, over time, when you ring the bell, the dog will start to salivate because it's associated the sound of the bell with the behavior of eating. And so it creates an association. Or if you show a red X on a computer before you administer a shock to someone, eventually, if you just flash a red X, they'll have a startle response, even though a shock might not follow. Um, any, but classical conditioning teaches us that we can associate pleasure of an addictive substance with any activity or any external cues. So for example, if someone always smokes a cigarette with their morning coffee and the stress reduction before work of smoking that cigarette, because nicotinic acid does alleviate some anxiety, uh, the stress reduction forms a paired association with morning and coffee. And over time, um, this bond will happen that will be very, very difficult to break. Because if you stop the cigarettes after you've developed this association, then we start to feel vulnerable. Um, the reason I'm not going to go into that is because one, uh, classical condition and conditioning and behaviorism has not come up with really any, uh, progressive tools for recovery. And, uh, it's kind of a dead end when it comes to understanding really what's going on in the mind of somebody, uh, in the throes of addiction. However, I will now go to neurobiology and neurobiology is a very interesting uh, set of has a very interesting set of insights uh for decades now addiction has been viewed as a disorder of the dopamine uh firing uh system uh, which is essentially uh located in the ventral striatum and as addictions act, many addictions activate the secretion of dopamine in the ventral striatum, uh, which is a region of your brain that, and my brain that initiates habits and routines. Um, and it's a pathway that links our motor behaviors in the basal ganglia with our frontal lobe. So once an, a routine has been wired, both our thinking and our behaviors start to work in sync with the secretion of dopamine. So any ritual behavior from alcohol to shopping to sex to OCD compulsions can activate the circuit. Unfortunately, the neurobiology, while it has many positive uh, the insights into dopamine and how quickly dopamine uh, runs out once we acquire a substance. It's really associated with the hunt for something, not the acquisition of a commodity. And that helps explain why so many uh, addictive substances from drugs to sex to shopping, when we actually consummate the craving, the pleasure almost immediately dissipates. Um, but no promising treatments have been developed. And so, um, and it's very clear that while dopamine release is diminished in individuals who uh, use cocaine and speed and other stimulants, individuals who have alcohol dependence or uh, especially those with opiate 
and weed dependence um, generally very often don't have any dopamine, diminished dopamine firing. They might have a surplus of it. So as an explanation, while it has some elegance to it, it really doesn't explain because just as many uh, addicts have too much dopamine and some have too little. So to explain it in terms of neurobiology and just looking at somebody's brain and saying, oh, well, this person is going to be uh, an alcoholic because of the level of dopamine really doesn't make much sense. Now, there are some times where uh, neurobiology helps provide medication that helps people in recovery. Um, the insights of neurobiology are why now, uh, if you are uh, in acute cocaine withdrawal or speed withdrawal, um, you might be given bupropion or Wellbutrin uh, because that would upregulate dopamine and help they your brain make up for all the exogenous dopamine that's been removed if you were coming off of an opiate you might be given bup buprenorphine which is different from bupropion <laughs> buprenorphine is suboxone it's a synthetic opiate but it's nowhere near as strong or addictive as heroin or other opiates certainly fentanyl and if you were coming off of acute alcohol withdrawal, you might be given, well, benzodiazepines because alcohol uh, as a toxin, though, targets GABA receptors in the frontal lobe. So benzos do the same, but in a much more uh, skillful way. It doesn't lead to the vast disinhibition and motor impairments that alcohol does. So... Uh, neurobiology, a uh, long way to go before providing any lasting uh, treatment, but it does provide some insights into how to reduce the suffering of acute withdrawal from addictive substances. So, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, addiction in AA is caused by what is called uh, and I have to say this is a terrible term from any clinical perspective, but the literature in AA stems from the 1930s. Um, and from that perspective, addiction is caused by what was called character defects related to self-centered fixation and fear. AA sees in alcoholics a tendency towards grandiosity, narcissism, um, an inability to accept life on life's terms and to be an individual who is just connected with others without any special kind of focused attention. Um, it, uh, while the psychological insights of AA are pretty, uh, unsophisticated, um, and I say that as someone who's gone to countless AA meetings over 30 years, uh, it's a very unsophisticated insight into addiction, but it does provide some very beneficial tools. Um, it's uh, It uh, helps people re-socialize and develop mutuality through disclosing experiences through the 12 steps, which emphasize connecting with individuals and disclosing internal states and feelings and finding um, both uh, uh, understanding, uh, renewing and repairing damaged attachments and essentially building up one's sense of self. Um, of course, there are some significant drawbacks. Uh, one, AA emphasizes uh, belief in a higher power, which is a nice way to 
sidestep the fact that countless people in AA referred to uh, God as being a central part of their recovery. And for many people who grew up traumatized by uh, religious beliefs, uh, that immediately can make AA a non-starter. Um, there's value in AA's, uh, not only is it widespread, but it's peer-led, so individuals are not in groups led by experts, they're simply in groups with other alcoholics or addicts, which which helps to lessen the sense of shame that many people in recovery feel. Um, But unfortunately, AA is very, very adamant on complete renunciation uh, and as a model rather than harm reduction. And so for many, many people um, for whom complete renunciation is not realistic, the emphasis on complete abstinence, as it's called, can actually lead to chronic uh, bottoms, uh, setbacks, uh, shame, feelings of shame coming back in, starting to count days again, and so forth. So um, I do believe that for anybody in recovery, going to 12-step meetings is a terrific idea, but I would definitely say, from my perspective, um, feel permitted to take the psychology with a grain of salt, and um, do the part of the program that works for you. And it's very possible to be an atheist amidst countless people who believe in God and still recover. I know I've been doing it for 30 years, but I'm not going to pretend that A is for everyone. There's certainly Buddhist recovery groups that have many of the same benefits of mutuality and support. Dharma recovery groups. So uh, don't give up if AA is not for you. Now, on to my last and favorite insight into addiction, which is the attachment theory-based approach to addiction. Addiction as an attachment disruption. So the basics of... (laughs) Attachment theory, if you're not familiar, we are all born with an innate psychobiological system that motivates us to seek proximity with others for security, care, to address our needs. At the beginning of life, that's for soothing, warmth, food. We can't even be left alone for short periods because babies' heads, if they fall in the wrong position, they can suffocate. So, Um, We're born with this constant innate motivation to connect, and this need for connection is even stronger than the need for food. So the patterns of connection that happen in infancy and attachment theory, it is shown, leads to lasting behavioral, behavioral tendencies in our adult life. The patterns of connection essentially are what form the right hemisphere, the right orbital frontal lobe, and they create durable emotional expectations of others. So if we are in a situation where we in childhood are securely attached to a caregiver, where a caregiver can provide us with the four core attachment needs of reliable attention and proximity, and empathy, and soothing when we're in distress, and express delight as with our growth, then our attachment system will switch off, we'll become very capable of exploring the world, and then when we encounter a stimuli that is scary, our attachment system will fluidly switch back on, and we'll seek our father, our mother, or some uh, caregiver will be reunited. And over time, that creates a secure base in children that have a secure base. It has been shown over countless longitudinal studies um, are less 
likely to experience substance dependency or addiction in their adult life. I'll talk about just how how significant these early life experiences are. Those who received unreliable attention, sometimes a caregiver was available and delighted or soothing. Sometimes they were anxious or unavailable or there was sporadic, unpredictable attention. The child becomes anxious, uh, doesn't associate their sense of self with positive affects, and <clears throat> they become in in they tend to not pursue exploration of their environments. They're always monitoring their caregiver. This over time becomes a form of hypervigilance, and over time, uh, as we'll see. These early survival states um, then can turn into addictive tendencies. On the other hand, children whose caregivers were completely unavailable or utterly unsatisfying, they switch their attachment system off. They become extremely self-reliant, auto-regulating. They devalue others. And so in both cases, both anxious and especially avoidant, there's this tendency to choose, uh, one, substances and behaviors that will regulate our emotions rather than relying on other people to do so. Because if our early caregivers fail to regulate our emotions over time, we'll learn that we really can't trust other people if we really can trust other people, we will be driven to choose substances or addictive behavioral routines as a way to auto-regulate our anxiety, our fear, our loneliness, our sadness, our anger, our despair, you name it. Any negative emotional state, uh, the child will grow to distrust others because if my parents couldn't alleviate them in me. The emotional belief that we carry with us is that no one will be able to regulate or alleviate these emotions. Therefore, the only choice I have is TV, food, pot, alcohol, uh, sex, you name it. So individuals, interestingly, tend to choose substances that recreate the survival strategies of childhood. The hypervigilant, anxious child often has adult predilections for cocaine and speed. Um, the emotionally shut down avoidance are definitely clinically more prone to dependence on alcohol and opiates because they're recreating the dissociative or emotionally shut down states. If you look, meta-analysis of longitudinal associations between substance abuse and attachment show that the less secure an individual it was in childhood, the greater the substance abuse outcomes. And stu ACE studies, which are adverse childhood experience studies, show that, and this was a large 18,000-person study, showed that 80% of drug and alcohol dependence is attributable not to genetics in any way, but to adverse childhood experiences. So in other words, um, there's a lot of clinical evidence that the early experiences of our first couple of years of life cast significant shadows that linger uh, on for decades in our behaviors and our compulsions and so forth. Emotions that fail to receive uh, care and attention aren't integrated into our self-structure. And so again, we will seek auto-regulation, soothing via substances, rather than learning to turn to others and disclose our internal states for co-regulation. Eventually, this explains the addictive tendency to have a life that becomes smaller and more isolated, the dependency upon substances. And it also explains why some people are more prone to addiction than others. So it meets a lot of the criteria for a 
makes a successful model to addiction than any of the other explanations ranging from the 12-step model, the even the Buddhist model, the capitalist model, the neurobiological model, the Freudian model, and so forth. Hmm. Of course, there's some similarities between Freudian thought and attachment, because all attachment theory eventually can be traced back to Freud. Addicts describe their first drink and drug as a kind of embrace, the greatest hug I ever had, many people in recovery say when they talk about the first time they had a drink or a drug, how safe and confident they felt. In other words, the substance provides the secure base that caregivers couldn't. So any form of healing requires addressing these <clears throat> early emotional beliefs that are stored largely unconsciously in uh, Alan Shore suggests the right orbital frontal. And while that might at first seem a difficult thing to do, in fact, there's been a lot of amazing work by various different clinicians, most promisingly recently by Daniel Brown at uh, Harvard Medical School. Um, he's a famous attachment psychologist. And um, he developed, because he's also a Buddhist, an ideal parent meditation, where what we do is we, in our <clears throat> meditation, we visualize uh, ourselves back in a childhood setting where we fe first felt most alone or abandoned. And then what we do is we uh, visualize who would have been ideal caregivers that embody all of the secure attributes, the responsive, consistent, accepting, and mirroring caregivers and so what we're doing is essentially over time, and this is a practice that has to be done day in and day out for a very long period of time, uh, we're burning into the right orbital frontal replacement models that provide a secure base of reliable, accepting, never rejecting uh, figures. And in some way, this bears some similarity with the God figure that helps people in AA and other 12-step groups recover. God is a ideal parent figure. If it's a, a God that is visualized as loving and accepting and tolerant rather than judgmental. Another pro another ancient Buddhist practice that helps is to visualize ourselves as a child and to send this representation of that vulnerable part of ourself, what's called the Brahma-viharas, unconditional friendliness and compassion, expressed delight, and a non-reactive allowing state for that part of ourself, that the inner child that feels most abandoned, emotional, disconnected, frightened, a tolerance and acceptance of it, but not, but learning to differentiate ourselves from that figure. So this practice is in some ways related to internal family systems therapy and so forth. So my allergies are really uh, making this talk an endurance test. So what I'm going to do is now lead us in a meditation where we're going to do a little bit of both the ideal parent protocol and the Brahma Viharas, and hopefully in some way, um, along with just a general relaxing practice, hopefully in some way you'll find some benefit, even if you don't identify as an addict in any sense. So thanks for listening, and now find a really comfortable seated position I would recommend either turning your camera off or repositioning yourself where you're not in view because it's really hard to relax and be comfortable when you know you're being viewed by others. So 
So closing the eyes, and bring your attention into the body and seeing if you can find an expression of yourself breathing in and out, an area of the body where it's really comfortable to observe and just be aware of, am I inhaling or am I exhaling or am I in between? those two states. So for some, it might be the tip of the nose feeling air entering and then exiting. Um, For others, it might be the uh, chest expanding and contracting or the belly expanding and releasing. I like to feel the breath as an energy flowing up from the abdomen to the heart center in with the inhalation, like waves coming into a shore. And then the exhalation I generally feel is energy moving back down and releasing uh, the, the muscles in the torso. And so inhalation goes from abdomen, energy up, from abdomen to chest, heart center, and then exhalation, the energy recedes from heart center back down to the belly. With the inhalation, the belly expands. With the exhalation, the belly really releases. But there's no right or wrong place to observe yourself breathing. And if observing yourself breathing in and of itself is not a pleasurable, soothing practice, then just with your eyes closed, just begin to listen to the sounds of the room, your environment, trying to stay present as each new sound occurs and as each sound recedes without any judgment or visualization of what's causing the sound. And so we're just going to sit for a little while, and whenever a thought arises that for a moment or a period of time pulls you away from this practice. Most important is not to feel any sense of frustration or uh, judgment. Simply to note what thought it was that uh, lured you away promise if it seems important to return to it later and then just bring your attention to something present in your body a sensation or something present in your environment a sound and then just return to the practice and noting that it's just as valuable in practice those times when we drift away and we become cognizant of that, that's just as valuable as all the times where we can settle easily. So it's all beneficial.
So for those of you that would like to try out the ideal parent protocol or ideal parent figure meditation, I'll lead it now, but if you'd like to stay with the breath or following sounds, that's fine as well. So what I'd invite you to do, and this is a meditation definitely for people who are capable of visualizing people and places within your mind's eye. So, if you will, imagine you could get into a time machine where you're completely safe, like a secure bubble that also could travel back in time. And this time machine is going to travel all the way back, decades upon decades to childhood. And to a time in your life, maybe, or an image of memory fragment of a room or a place where you very often retreated when you felt or wound up at when you felt most alone or insecure. And see if you can visualize what this childhood room if you can remember it, that's great. If not, just create one from your imagination. And see if you can visualize some of the objects that might have been in this room, this place. It might have been a bedroom or a living room or a place outdoors, even a hiding spot. And then what we're going to try to do is try to visualize either one or two figures that for you would represent the ideal caregiver that would have made you feel safer, more seen, a caregiver that embodies reliability and attention and empathy. This can be <clears throat> a real figure in the world, but if you can visualize an individual entirely out of whole cloth, that's fine as well. For some of us who had traumatic Attachment wounds, at first, the idea of creating or feeling safe with a caregiver during childhood might be rather inconceivable, and that's okay. You can hold the image far away if you want to gain trust. And it can be a very real figure from the world. It can be even someone that you know, though preferably not a family member. Somebody who has all of the ideal attributes of attention, empathy, soothing, appreciative, Tolerant. And if you can't visualize someone, just feel the presence of them nearby. So you're no longer in this place, feel alone. 
there's now the sense that someone safe is available and see if you can in your body note how it would have felt to have secure attention reliable attention during this period of your life This ideal figure is reliable, never rejecting, and most important, you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to monitor them. Their demeanor is predictable. They're there for you. So now for the second practice. See if you can remove yourself from the perspective of yourself years ago. And now you're in any space facing any representation you can conjure of what we could call your inner child, the part of you that holds some of the earliest, most difficult memories and experiences, the abandoned parts, the part of ourself that still anticipates either abandonment or engulfment or hostility, the part of ourself that holds the anxious anticipation of criticism or the sense of shame. And just see if you can conjure up an image of yourself as a child holding all of these painful feelings. This is a part of yourself that we very often don't want to have any awareness of. And then what I'd like you to do is... If you can visualize 
the child or even just have a hazy representation send this figure meta may you be happy i care about you i want you to be happy and peaceful Now we've become a caregiver, taking care of that part of ourself that is so vulnerable. And then expressing karuna or compassion. I care about your pain. I care about how scared and alone and overwhelmed you feel. For some of us, we might visualize a representation of ourself from a time we felt most abandoned and just send these, this part of ourself the kindness and care that we wished we had received then. And finally, um, in the presence of this representation of a part of ourself that holds all of our pain, our loneliness, our fears, also recognizing how this heart persevered and didn't give up and found eventually a path to people or safety, noting the resilience that's been in us even during the most painful parts and appreciating the resilience that allowed us to survive even the most difficult periods of our life. Perhaps the music we played, the art we made, the activities, the ways that soothed and weren't in any way addictive, weren't in any way harmful, but provided us with a sense of security during even the most difficult of times. So we could continue with these meditations as long as we want, but I think it's best to practice them in short durations, but if we do integrate them into any kind of daily sit practice, 
these integrative tools that help address and create new internal images or representations of care can be really, really valuable resources in any kind of recovery, any kind of healing. So when you're ready, you can, if you'd like, bring your attention back to the gathering. 